there. It's January 18th, 2024. Welcome to episode 306 of Rokamji Angomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam Tsonazis. Durubashama. Hope you're doing well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. You know, there are so many elements to what happened to Iran and to the people of Iran in the aftermath of the 1979 revolution that catapulted Khomeini to power and in some ways unwittingly and birthed the Islamic Republic, that it's hard to know where to begin when addressing the tragic fallout. How do you possibly untangle the story of an event so seismic that it fundamentally reorganized the lives of generations of Iranians for decades to come? But beyond the obvious atrocities, executions, human rights abuses, the suppression of dissent, the imposition of theocratic rule, mismanagement, undoing of modernism and progress, beyond all of that, and perhaps less spoken of, is the dire cultural implications of the coming of the Islamic Republic. The revolution changed the course of the lives of some remarkable artistic talents whose creativity would forever be repressed and whose careers would be undone. Think of Behrouz Vousiqi, a movie star in his prime who would have to suspend his craft for decades. Think of Gugush being removed from the stages and airwaves of the world. Think of authors and painters and poets and dancers who were deplatformed overnight. We want to focus today's episode on the story of a man of tremendous talent whose gifts would be suppressed by that 1979 revolution and who wrote the kinds of emotionally moving songs that could very much provide a soundtrack for what happened to Iran. The story of Habib, Habib Mohibian, has not really been told in English. A brilliant musician and songwriter with an extraordinary singing voice who released his first album, a hit record, in 1977, just before everything changed. Habib would effectively be exiled to America and would keep his music coming, but without feeling the belonging of being in his homeland. He wrote, he recorded, produced, performed, found his stride again in many ways, but always pined to get back to Iran. And when he did so in 2009, he did so only to have his creativity snuffed out again and to be unable to lead his artistic career until his death in Iran a few years later. The story of Habib is in parts inspirational, wondrous and moving, and tragic and sorrowful. It is a story worth telling and a story worth hearing. And today, we're lucky to have his son, Mohammed Mohibian, a popular musician and personality in his own right, joining us for a feature hour to talk about his dad and the legacy he left. And we will try to pepper in as much Habib melodies as we can as well. All right, good to have you with us. This is episode 306. Let's get started. This is Rook. Smart Pega, the legacy of Habib. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was telling you earlier that um, 
Habib is is one of those that he's an interesting case for me because mm-hmm. he's not quite I mean as a kid growing up in the diaspora right. you know I know the big the big names <laughs> the one name big names Abby. the other one name big names Abby Gugush right. Dariush Haide you know yes. um I know Habib's song like I know Ma Dad I know mm-hmm. you know some of those songs that all, seems like all Iranians know but he didn't have or doesn't have that kind of name or stature mm-hmm. I spoke to Muhammad in the lead up to our interview today that uh, that he's going to be joining us in a little bit but we made a phone call a couple of days ago and I was kind of telling him that I was like you know I gotta say about your dad <laughs> and he said he partly thinks that's because of his dad's personality that his dad was always a loner he, he mm-hmm. said I, I mean I'm going to ask him about this in right. the interview but that he just wasn't you know, he wasn't this big personality. He was going to be out there selling himself. You know, right. like it was, um, <laughs> and and very private and very very much to himself. An mm-hmm. introvert, he said. You know, um, and and that's interesting. I mean, that that is part and parcel of how people get recognized. You exactly. know, especially in this you know this era. Um, so he's. I mean, were you someone who knew the music of Habib growing up? It's funny. It's like those certain songs that you mentioned. I knew who he was and I knew those songs were his songs. But beyond that, I can't say that, you know, I even know of one concert that he maybe had growing up or that it was, you know, his songs were something that I would hear regularly. It was just when I heard it, I knew who he was. And the funny thing is, as you were mentioning that, I agree with you. But there's been a couple of instances where I've run into people and I've said, oh, you know, the greats. And then I've mentioned like Daryush, Ebi, Gugush, that sort of thing. And they've looked at me and they've been like, and happy. Yeah. And I've been like, yeah. Well, well here's yes. something I've learned <laughs> for the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this, that that just mentioning his name, mm-hmm. the, the fans are diehard. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they really believe, it's like, I don't even know what the equivalent would be in uh, in, in Canada. There's like Rush fans or something, you know, Taylor people. Swift fans. Swifties. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure, if we, I'm not sure if you want to call the, the Habib fan base Swifties, but yeah, kind of, you know, really, really dedicated. Right. Really, and the thing is, I mean, he, he was not an interpreter. He was mm-hmm. a creator, right? He wasn't just singing the songs with that crazy, incredible voice. Mm-hmm. He, he was writing the songs and, and the music and the lyrics. And and uh, there's remarkable stories around some of these songs that become big hits that are that are coming out of his gut, you know, mm-hmm. that, are, that are, he's a real artist in terms of what he was doing in an era, we should mention, in Iran when most of the big names didn't write their own songs right. you know had songwriters had had lyricists had composers make, writing the music with some of whom we've had on the program mm-hmm. right so so he's he's quite unique in that way and yeah his fans are diehard and legitimately so but for example in England you know when I mentioned in the introduction there that that uh, I'm so grateful to be doing this in English it's partly because do a deep dive Google search on Habib. There's not a lot in English. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot in Persian, but not in English. Mm-hmm. And so to tell his story, to talk about it, and to have Muhammad coming on and doing that. And and by the way, I always get a little um, self conscious about bringing on the kid of a 
famous person and wanting to talk to, you know, who's got his own career. Like Muhammad, by the way, some of the songs that people would recognize would be the Muhammad Habib yeah, song. Exactly. Like AD, you know, I, I know that's like yeah. some of some of their their hits together. I, uh, I, I always have this, you know, especially hearing about um, or talking about Habib and his son, the instant image in my mind is like the photo of a of an album that they did together, which I think was called Javuni. Yeah, if that's I'm not the mistaken. First, that's the first big record for Muhammad. Yeah. Yeah. And that image that's on the front of this at the time I guess father and son the father and son that's like ingrained in my mind I can almost remember what they're wearing what they look like the way he's sitting all of that it's like this image that's just burnt into my brain yeah yeah so I'm doing the pre-interview with with Muhammad a couple days ago just talking to him and and I'm kind of sheepishly saying you know is it I was kind of thinking to make this all about your dad is that Mm -hmm. you thinking you know I'm waiting for him to sound awkward or maybe not object but sort of go well I got a new record coming out, man, right. you know, or something, you know, like we're going to talk about my old man, but he was, he was like, I, I mean, he'll say it, I'm sure in the interview, because he said to me, I, my whole life is about my dad, mm-hmm. my, you know, I owe everything oh, to wow. him. Yeah. So, and they're a pretty tight father and son, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of recording together, performing together exactly. in the, in the later years. And then this, oh, just this horrendous story, which, which is not that unfamiliar to any of mm-hmm. us, you know, who have family in Iran, et cetera. But that his dad goes back to Iran and then he can't, he's not there at the time of his dad's death. And awful. it's just, it's just awful. So we'll get to that. Mohammed Mohabian joining us in just a few moments from Los Angeles on the legacy of Habib. I should mention our, our dear Raha, mm-hmm. resonant Raha yeah. is sick with the COVID. With the COVID. That I can only, I was I was racking my brain in the last couple of days when I found out she had COVID, thinking, how did she catch this from you? <laughs> I didn't <laughs> have COVID. Let I, me just I don't care. I don't care what it, I only assume people get sick I only by get you passing it to them. About, oh because gosh, most, of the, most of the sickness that's I, happened in our- I knew it was going to come back to me. How did I know? <laughs> most of the people who've been sick anywhere within a two uh-huh. kilometer r- radius you know, of the Rook studio. nothing to do with the fact that it's flu season, that COVID's yeah. on the rise, and the weather like, is changing. I don't remember when Pegas saw Raha. So how would, oh, wait a minute. There was that time we, we met at the theater like a couple of weeks ago. Aha. I found, well, I'm sure. you know, And was, she wore my jacket. Yeah. Uh, well, see, you're not see? making. I know. I'm just. I'm just feeling case, the fire. And and uh, I feel like the last person standing to a certain extent because uh, you were sick last I week, was, so it was Raha was. was here and not you. I know. I mean, so the evidence is piling. By the way, that I know. you you passed this on. <laughs> but but how are you doing? I'm honestly. It took me a full week. Like I, today's the first day that I'm kind of feeling like myself again, mm-hmm. and you know, got out of bed and and you know, got ready to come and come into the studio. But it was awful. There's this weird flu going around. Yes. And for anyone within the Toronto area, please, you know, up your vitamins, take your juices, whatever you have to do, because yeah. apparently everyone is getting it, and it's horrible. It's yeah. like headache, um, it's like congestion, all these symptoms, and it's not COVID. So we had a a, a big guest that we were going to interview this week that uh, she canceled the last minute because yeah. uh, hopefully we'll re- because same thing. She mm-hmm. she's actually in Toronto and got the. Um, I don't think it's just Toronto, by the way, because I'm hearing people uh, seeing it well, on the American news and everything that uh, uh, all across Spreads the West. Even further. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you're Thank you're good you. and you're back. It's uh, good to be back. Yeah. And you know, my week has been dominated by Shakira. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, Why Shakira? Not not by my choice. <laughs> you know, 
I, I've been meaning to talk about this for a while. Somewhere in the last, I don't know what happened. Okay. Or h- how this happened. But all of my gadgets, mm-hmm. like all of my social media platforms or whatever they, you know. Right. All of them think that I'm, <laughs> think, I don't know what it was Super that I, I Googled. Shakira? I don't know what it, like what I looked at at some point. Right. What I said in the proximity of my iPhone that captured, I, I don't know. All I get is Shakira <laughs> videos, uh, clips, you know, Are moments. You humming one of her songs. I don't. I, I you know, and listen. I have I, Shakira's great. Yeah. Nothing against Shakira. I I had the chance to interview her once. Like, wow. yeah, a long time ago. It was at the Bunch of Music Video Awards, and she was she's lovely. But mm-hmm. but I, it's not. I don't even own a Shakira record. Okay, hold on. Being that you're a football fan, did it have something to do with the fact that her and her husband oh. PK, who or ex-husband rather, you think because I watch Premier League football, I don't know. I'm just trying to relate the, it somehow. The algorithms <laughs> think I don't know. But it is so weird because it's not just that they think I'm a Shakira fan. I am like a Shakira obsessive. Like. <laughs> There's no video of Shakira that doesn't like a somebody capturing Shakira that doesn't end up in my that's crazy Instagram or what or like Facebook or whatever anything I'm open you know it's really <laughs> Shakira's number one fan. It used to be Frenchies because of course I have a French bulldog that makes sense and uh, you know I put up and so yeah that does make sense right Shakira has usurped the Frenchies <laughs> it's just Shakira now. I can, you know, I can tell you what she's up to, like what her latest appearance on Fallon was. I mean, I don't know. This Shakira. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, there, there could, could be worse things. things. Exactly. Uh, exactly. There that. could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we, um, so we made a big announcement mm-hmm. last week. Yes. Um, and, but we didn't announce the lineup. Our first Rook, are you quit, you're crying. No, What's uh, happening this, is, with this you? is the remainder of the cold that I oh. had. My eyes are tearing. Oh my God. Are you giving this to me now? I, I got emotional After over Rahal Shakira and, is what happened. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's emotional. Wait till you get to Habib. Habib I know, right? the Shakira story. Uh, um, <laughs> would that Habib would be turning up in my, maybe I'll get some Habib video. Uh, yeah, it's all Shakira all the time. So Rook Live, yes. our first ever Rook in a theater, which mm-hmm. means we're doing the program in front of humans. We're yes. opening this up to the public, and and um, and we've got uh, special guests. I mean, normally we do long form interviews. This is mm-hmm. going to be shorter interviews and performances. And what a lineup! February seventh at Theater Aurora. The we on Monday we announced the lineup. I'm mm-hmm. just blown away by. We've got Maziar um, Falahi, mm-hmm. who is not only a remarkable singer and performer himself, but one of the nicest, the sweetest guys that he agreed to do this, you know, come and be part of our show. Uh, Mazir Falahi, Shiva Nigar, mm-hmm. the great uh, Iranian actress, flying up from L.A. to do this. Yes. Banafsheh Taharian, who we, our dear friend, who mm-hmm. has Chai with Banafsheh, her podcast. and That's right. uh, has What's her, her touring show called? Her from show? Lust to Loyalty. From Lust to Loyalty. She takes traditional... Persian Shahnameh stories yep. and redoes them in her own modern uh, style. It's mm-hmm. it's a great one woman show, and she'll be part of our lineup. Yes. And of course, Baba Kamini performing uh, and uh, bringing a couple of musicians with him. So this is at Theatre Aurora, February seventh, Aurora, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. I have some stories about Aurora. I'm okay. going to wait till the <laughs> night of. They're not all good stories, Uh-oh. but me and my relationship with Aurora, which if you don't, if you're listening to us, like most of you are outside of Toronto or outside of even Canada, 
Uh, Aurora is just north of Toronto. It's like a mm-hmm. suburb kind of, but it's its own city. The Aurora suburb kind of. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the Aurora people are mad at me now. But yeah, so, exactly. They're like Habib fans. They're really into Aurora. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of a. I mean, it's, it's sort of just near Toronto, yes. near enough to be drivable within an hour or less, you know. But That's uh, right. but it's north of the city and. And where densely, the Iranians always I was go. Say, yes, densely Shomal, they always go to the north. Did you know that? If you check out most metropolitan, most cities, mm-hmm. most urban places in the world, Iranians gravitate to the north. There what is go. that? I don't know. Yeah, well, find out. <laughs> Come on, you're the well, smart Well, we'll find pega. out before um, our February 7th show in Aurora. That's right. Uh, Captain Reza will be there. Uh, Anahita is going to do a performance. Mm-hmm. Wine and cheese reception. So limited tickets are still available. You go to Eventbrite. And type in Rook Live or just Rook, uh, R-O-Q-E, at Eventbrite. Or just go to our Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the link for the tickets is in the bio of our Instagram. That's right. Can't wait to see you guys there. I'm seeing all kinds of people buy tickets who I have no idea. They're, so excited. They're just, it's really fun, yeah. It'll and, be so nice to see everybody in person who, you know, we've got so many people who comment on things. And maybe we'll see a lot of them in some person. Some of them, so I would great. think. You would think, yeah. Now, I have an... So, Rook Live, February mm-hmm. 7th. Get your tickets. I have another announcement to make today. Another big one. Yes. Okay. You ready? Yes. We can announce that in March, jo- March 2024. Yes. Uh, joining us in the Rook studio for a special feature episode interview, the producer, the songwriter, the musician, the founder of Black Cats. Yes. Chapel Chaparre will be here Very for exciting. a feature interview. I, you know, I've wanted to talk to him for a long time, mm-hmm. and I've always wanted it in the studio, in person. I know. I mean, he is—he's um, unstoppable, right? He I mean, he's, he, he doesn't really stop. Is. He's just—he's involved in everything, yeah. and he's kind of another pop master in terms mm-hmm. of what he's. You're a Black Cats fan, right? I am. Yeah, I very much am. But I grew up with Black Cats. Like, I haven't always been. Oh. I'll tell you. But you, it, it really is like Black Cats was. Couldn't name a Rolling Stones song, could you? But Black childhood. Cats, yeah. Don't know a Beatles song for. Oh you know, my God! But everyone's, you could, everyone's gonna start believing this. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. You not but, to this extent. Well, I mean, listen. Right. I listen to non-Iranian music okay. just seldom. Shapal Shapare in the Rook Studio. Mm-hmm. Very excited for this. To hear his insights, to hear his perspective, starting back in Iran, coming to LA, being such a a big part of growing the 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 music uh legacy and mm-hmm. business of Iranian music outside of Iran. Shabal is gonna actually be in Toronto for the Bidmeshk Noruz Gala. This is an event I attended last year. It's got it's one of the finest Noruz events mm-hmm. around. Saturday, March sixteenth, they're doing their Bidmeshk uh Noruz Gala. This is at the Universal Event Space in the Greater Toronto area. Uh, and the live music guests are black cats. And this is a new, you know how Black Cats changed the lineup a little That's bit. That's right. There was Kamiar, there was, who else? There's Kamran Schubert, Human. Kamran Human. Like way back in the day. <laughs> uh, wasn't Ebby in Black Cats no, at one point? I don't think Chaperon so. Chaperon Chaperet was. No. Yeah, he was. was I he? think Ebby was, yeah. Really? Super Peace saying, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Back in the day. See, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, and so they've got the new Black Cats lineup, but they're all, they've also got five guest singers coming oh. who I think are going to be. The new black cats? Significant maybe? names. No, no, no. Oh. Like in addition to oh, the new Oh, in addition. Black okay. Yeah. Um, and there was, there's going to be a lot more going on at this thing too. The Big Mesh Knorr's Gala are very on Anahita's dancing at that. Mm-hmm. We have the, there's an open, we have, they have open <laughs> bar, full course dinner, photo booths, 
uh, sweets table, DJ, cigar station. Check this out. Late night hot dog and fries. Ooh. Right? After all the drinking. After all the polo and uh, sabzi <laughs> polo. <laughs> late night hot dog and fries. You had me at hot dog. Uh, anyway, for more, you can go to Bidmesh Events bidmeshevents.com or bidmesh underscore events on Instagram. And Shapal uh, Shapare here in the Rook Studio. We're looking forward to that. So in a few moments, Mohammed Mohebian joining me on yes. the legacy of Habib. But first, I want to actually say a big thank you. Uh, this episode and this upcoming interview with Mohammed Mohebian is made possible with the help of Neely Interiors, the great mm. Neely Interiors, Pega. Yes, with a gorgeous showroom. Right, I think it's called the Design Space. Design Space, yeah. my apologies. I think a showroom is for like cars or something. Okay. <laughs> the Neely, Neely Interiors. Elevate your space with Neely Interiors where sophistication meets serious, uh, seamless design. Transform your surroundings into a haven of luxury and style with exquisite custom-made window coverings and luxury blinds, curated opulent wallpapers, impeccable interior finishings. Uh, this is high design. And they know what they're doing and they're great at it. Absolutely. We know that. Yes. Their expertise ex extends beyond aesthetics to encompass interior renovations for professional offices, clinics, private residences. Experience the epitome of personalized luxury with Neely Interiors, where every detail matters and your space becomes a reflection of your unique vision. Now, if you want to know where to get in touch with Neely Interiors, we've got you look in the description of our uh, of this episode and we'll, we'll put the link there to Neely Interiors but to take advantage of a complimentary design consultation oh. Pega for your residential or commercial <laughs> project contact Neely Interiors on Instagram at Neely Interiors or phone them at 437-224-2333 437-224-2333 the good thing about a podcast is you can stop the podcast <laughs> Rewind 10 seconds. Yeah, get that You know number what they again. would say on TV? They would say like a phone number. You'd be mm -hmm. like running to get a pen. Am I showing my age? I mean, not really, but sure. <laughs> do you remember pens? <laughs> I do remember pens, Okay, yes. you do. All right, thank God. <laughs> uh, so 437-224-2333 uh, or visit their showroom in Vaughan, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Neely Interiors. They wanted to be uh, sponsors of this episode. Um, they believe in telling the story of Habib and mm -hmm. Mohammed Mohibian. Thank you, Neely. And Pega, we are coming to you on uh, rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you want to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, we have a channel on Telegram. Uh, and you can support us by going to our website and pressing the support us button and becoming a Rook member on Patreon. And remember our live show, February 7th, if you're in the greater Toronto area, find our tickets, uh, find your tickets uh, at the link on our Instagram. All right, Pega, you'll be back on the other side of this yes, for a roundup. Let's get to our interview. I know he is there waiting in Los Angeles. You know, there are a few very famous names in Iranian popular music of the last century, and, and most of them can be recalled with just one name, Abid Aryush Gugush Haideh. 
My feature guest today is an Iranian-American musician and the son of a prominent Iranian artist who you could argue can also be identified with that one name, the late singer, songwriter, musician, composer, Habib. Take a listen to this. من مرد تنهای شبم مهر خاموشی بلبم تنها و غمگی رفته هم دل از همه گسسته هم تنهای تنها غمگین رسوا تنها و بی فردا منم تنهای تنها همچین رسوا تنها و بی فردا منم من مرد I'm guessing a lot of you out there remember that song or know it from 1977, Mad Shab. That's Habib. Habib's musical journey began with a, a profound interest in the guitar, and by 1977, he rose to fame with the release of that hit record, Mardatan Hoya Shab, featuring the renowned title track and another popular song, Shahloya Man. This success was followed by his second album, Salam Ham Soye, in 1978, and Habib's significant contributions to Iranian music then solidified his legacy as a professional and influential musician, both in Iran and in the diaspora. He passed away in 2016, leaving behind a lasting impact on the Iranian music scene, and notably at the time of his death, he could not pursue his career in music inside Iran after years of being exiled and having his career derailed in its prime. To discuss the story, the sadness, and the immense legacy of Habib, it's an honor to be joined by his son, Muhammad, today. Muhammad was born in Tehran and raised in Los Angeles. He worked with his father on his own debut album called Javuni in the early 2000s. He's a musician, a singer, and Muhammad has also been very active on social media since the beginning of the uprising last year, dedicating a, a few songs he created to the women, life, freedom movement in Iran. And right now, I'm joined by Muhammad Mohabian in Los Angeles. Hello, sir. Hello, dear Jean. Thank you for hosting me in your show. Thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you, Muhammad. Thank you for doing this. And I have to say from the top, you know, approaching an interview like this, I would uh, I would often feel trepidatious about asking someone who has their own career, their own life, about their famous parent, especially to lead the interview this way. But you've said you really want to speak about your dad, so we've titled this episode The Legacy of Habib. Tell me about wanting to talk about him. Yeah, well, you know, I owe everything to him. Um everything I've learned I owe to him just growing up with him seeing his journey being part of his journey and the originality of the person he was I have nothing else to talk about but him frankly you know he I mean he was very famous um, and he was masterful as a songwriter and musician and a singer, but he's not always cited amongst the biggest names in Persian popular music. You, you've told me that you think that's partly because he was a loner, partly the way he led his life. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I mean, you hear it in Maratana Aishab too. It could be a double meaning, Maratana Aishab. Um, you know, when he rose in Iran, he kind of, he, not kind of, he rose by himself. He had bands that he would play with 
just in Tabriz and Rezaia before he became popular. And after he broke Maratana Ishab, he was just, you know, he wasn't so much into getting together, party buzzy and that kind of stuff. He was just kind of in his own world, an introvert artist. And um, that's all that was important for him, just to create and to give out. Nothing else was, you know, really made any difference or caught his attention. It's oxymoronic, isn't it? It's a contradiction to be a, a popular performer who takes the stage and also an introvert. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That it's and that's how it was, and that's even when we came to the United States um, in the mid '80s, he experimented two albums, uh, Hamraz being one of them, Oshid Khanum being another one, which were kind of poppy. They were. Um, the diaspora in LA at that time, they encouraged him to do that. They said, this is what works right now. You know, those sad songs or songs about social issues and stuff, but people don't want to listen to that here. People just want to, you know, have a good time. And, you know, it got to where my father just felt uncomfortable with having done that, even though a lot of those songs, Hamra's, Sadai Fagya, they're all different still, you know, they are, uh, the six eights kind of poppy, but they all—they're still his stories. They're yeah. still stories of—they're still kind of sad, you know. He couldn't leave that. But yeah, after that, I remember he left the valley where you know the community was condensed, and we went to the South Bay, and he just stayed there and did the recording until I came along, and I was you know for me he came back in the scene kind of and became poppy just to you know just for me let me get to all of that because uh it's it's a it's a rich and interesting story but uh, you know, where to start and end well, it's okay yeah yeah i mean is it fair to say i mean even starting back to the 1970s let alone later on in la etc is it fair to say that habib didn't um play the game if you will the music industry game yeah yeah totally totally I mean, that's what I've always seen. That's what I've always seen. Same thing with Farhad, same thing with um, songwriters, Ferudun Furuhi, Kuroshi Ahmai. Yeah, pretty much all the ones that are creators, it seems like. Tell me a bit about what his inspirations were. Obviously, Iran before the revolution was a different place and time. He's born in the late 1940s. Uh, he's growing up in the 50s and 60s. I, I understand he was heavily influenced by Western pop, like the Beatles, right? Beatles. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. First and foremost, Beatles, John Lennon. Um, you know, I would hear him sing all, you know, songs that, oh, you know, I, I still hear him, you know, today on, you know, in American stations and stuff, oldies and rocks, oldies and that's that's where his influence came and that's what his music became he became a new genre of like country 
country rock, which was, you know, it's his own school, you could say, in Iranian music. And yeah, yeah that's what it was. He definitely stands out. I mean, one of the reasons why he really stands out is his, he's got this remarkable voice, which is, um, uh, it almost defies anybody, like it's it's like a, it's like a, a a career liability to try and cover a Habib song because then you have to kind of you have to try and sing like him, which is uh, I have this old canard like my my old joke is because my idol is David Bowie. You know nobody should ever cover cover Bowie because nobody could sing like Bowie, and I feel like there's something like that going on with Habib. And by oh, really? by the seventies, he's singing on Iranian TV. This is before his military service and even before his first record. How would he describe those years, if you can remember what he would say about that time? You know, I mean, all the good memories he's had of Iran, all the memories that he always shared with me of you know how good Iran was, was from that time. Yeah, that's how he described it. He just enjoyed what he was doing and it was kind of difficult because he comes from a conservative family. So there was a little clash there, but you know, he did what he loved and he was good at it and he left his mark. How did he negotiate that? The becoming a, 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 pop, a you know, pop rock singer coming out of a conservative and even religious family? You know, anyway. His mother loved him and his mother was a really good mother. It wasn't like conflict or stopping and stuff. It was just, they felt something about it. So one memory that my father shares is he, he was singing a Beatles song in one of these uh, TV programs that you're talking about before he became big. And his mother had seen it. And either on TV or radio, sorry, it might be radio. And when he came back home, my, his mother said, what, what was this, this barking you were doing? I didn't understand anything. So, <laughs> do you remember what song it was? I don't know. It was a Beatles song. It was a Beatles song. But he would have been singing it in English, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. amazing to me because, and there's a whole um, historical explanation, cultural ex explanation around this about what happens after the revolution when um, music, uh, Iranian po popular music starts to shift its space to say Los Angeles and there there starts to be a cachet in singing in Persian because people for nostalgic reasons or for identity reasons want to hear the Persian but there's this period in the 70s where actually a lot of Iranian singers are singing in English. There's that, those videos of like Ebi and Shahram Shapareh singing in English um, yeah. which is quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that was, I mean 70s was just, you know, when disco and rock was being born and yeah and it, it, it affected the world it influenced the world what was muhammad what was habib's special secret sauce i mean that the first album comes out in 1977 he of course not just being an interpreter not just a singer but he writes the songs he composes the songs he records the first album's massive um it's also a victim of its timing it comes out just a little before a revolution that would change yeah. everything Iran, in, in Iran, including his chances of continuing to build his musical career there. But, but for that moment, what do you believe made him so great? You know, his feelings. His he just went. He would go deep into his feelings. Lyrics were very important for him. Um, he always said that 
it's lyrics that make a good melody like someone could make a good melody out of and it starts from there um there are a few lyrics that he had said himself he wrote himself um he's just it's it's a it's a it's an ingredients you know it's an ingredients and and being ded dedicated to uh, doing what you love at its best i think yeah from your observations would, would he write the lyrics first then and and then put music to them it, you know, it depends. There's, I've seen him get lyrics and put melodies on it. I've seen him make a melody and like put a mer on it. He would call it mer, sher, uh, mer. So he would be kind of like lyrics where he considered weak and he would give those lyrics to a lyricist and the lyricist would finish it and he would put it in that lyricist's name. Not all, but there's a few songs that have, that are like that. Um, yeah, it, it depends. Sometimes he would put the melody on lyrics, sometimes vice versa. It depends. I want to I want to play a bit of a song from that era, another big song, Modar. I've always felt this song was um particularly compelling. Um we, we story. Well, what, what, tell me actually before we play a bit of it, what what does it mean to you and what's the story behind it? Well, he was in Reza or Tabriz right now. I'm forgetting. Uh, but you know Azerbaijan performing, and he gets a phone call where his uh, siblings tell him that come, you need to come back to Tehran. Mother is not feeling well, so he understood. You know, you understand from the person's voice and how they're telling you to come that you know something has happened. And that night, he he said the story on TV before too. He um goes on stage he performs and actually he writes the song before he goes on stage wow he writes Mada, yeah and he performs it on stage and while he's crying there's people dancing tango he always he always recalls that and that's yeah that's how it happened wow and then he went back to so and stuff that. he would have written it pretty quick that was really from his heart and when you listen to the lyrics of Mada, it's just we don't have anything like it so close to the heart and just yeah you can play it we'll see the original mother the first mother You know, after you telling that story, it's always sounded like a passionate song to me, but it takes on a whole other meeting. Meaning, I, I can't. 
I wow. still hear your voice, uh, me Pichina. Yeah, I, I still hear your voice uh, everywhere. And and Muhammad, that's another one. That's a, that's Habib, of course, from from the late seventies. That that's a, that's another one where I mean, he has this remarkable, uncanny ability. And I'll talk about this later in the interview too. I want to talk about a couple of other songs that are like this, where he's walking this line between profound pathos, like sadness. Um, and and you hear that and you it, it almost might, wants to make you cry and at the same time it's got this like jaunty melody and like the bass line you know it's it, and you almost go is, is this a celebration what and and it's it's this remarkable mix that uh, is, is really quite unique yeah yeah you'll find out that a lot of that in a, in a more exaggerated way in, in the Hamburg's album actually it's like it's upbeat it's upbeat but it's sad it's kind of a, a a trope of persian you know pop music at least up until a certain period that that it's gamgin you know that we were always writing sad lyrics and stuff why was he was that reflective of his personality or is that just what he was attracted to in terms of how he emoted in song probably both i mean we did have a difficult time he did have grief that he shared but he also that i guess growing up and becoming a musician for him it's that made that had more meaning creating that than you know like a upbeat six eight dance song he saw relating to social issues and you know sad events more in feeding the heart mm. than otherwise you're you're born words. yeah it's okay i mean you're doing it you were born in tehran just a little while like three three or four years after that debut record comes out how and when do you become aware as a kid that you had this famous and talented dad well you know when i was really small in iran I mean, couldn't really then because the guitars were hidden. You know, if I know if anyone came to our house, you know, it was just, I don't remember any of it then. But I remember when we left and when we were in Turkey, um, he would, in the, in the hotel, he would sit and play the guitar and people would come around him, you know. Um, friends of friends, you know, it was just the people in the hotel all knew each other. They were all Iranians that had escaped. And same thing in Italy. And then I, it, you know, remembering it, how I thought about it as a kid, it was, I still didn't know that my dad's this rock star. I didn't know that. Hmm. But I knew that people knew him, you know. I, I didn't think about how that far. I was really small. Right. But even when I came to the States um, growing up, it's still kind of the same thing because it's it's weird, you know. Okay, we're not in Iran, you know. We're a diaspora here, and you know, I would see other singers and other artists too. And when we lived in the valley, and that was a popular apartment complex where everyone went through. <laughs> um, it wasn't until I myself uh, started with my father, and when we started touring, and I saw. You know, that's when I saw it. 
Yeah. That's when I really saw it. The con- like, his wow. connection to peop- the people. Yeah. Or the people's yeah. connection to him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm still stuck on the idea that you're this little kid in Iran. Um, you know, I so often think about, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about for years. I did my university uh, graduate thesis on revolutionary Iran. You know, I, I think about that. Uh, sometimes I think about what happened in 1979 as almost like a sick social experiment. You know, what happens when you, when you change society overnight and you eliminate, you, you suppress um, all, all forms of culture. So this kid whose dad is a rock star doesn't even know that, isn't even aware of, of like the musical instruments aren't even allowed to be put out in the house. It's, it's, it's a bizarre um, ecosystem that, that could only be created in a situation like that. Like there's no, there's no other scenario where somebody wouldn't be aware of something. I mean, even the, even if, even if the, you know, stars always say, Oh, my kid doesn't think I'm cool. They, you know, but they, they're aware that the parents is a star. Right. Um, but you, you don't even have that opportunity in Iran. Yeah. Yeah. The Mullahs took over, you know? I mean, I'll, I'll ask you about his decision to move back to Iran in 2009, but that early period, like the 80s, when you guys leave, what what do you think moving to and being in America was like for your dad? You know, I mean, when we left, I guess it was very hard for them. You know, I, I remember, you know, just remembering the leaving was is just going through Turkey, going through Italy. It's just you're, you're always yearning for home. You don't have your you know, big family around. I didn't have my grandmother anyway. Uh, for him, I I remember what my mom would tell me in Turkey, he would go to the ocean, you know, by himself and just, you know, pray and come back, you know, just to let his heart out. Um, and coming to the United States, I he always felt alien. He always wanted to go back home. And he thought, I think, yeah, he thought, as my mom tells me when, when, we, when he left Iran, they didn't think that this curse that came after the revolution would stay so long, you know? And of course they created a war and all this stuff that continues, that's keeping them. And that's what he thought. And, you know, he just, you know, it just becomes, you know, time just passes, China time just passes. And uh, he never assimilated to this society like, like many have. Like many had to the American society. Um, it's a little unfortunate, I think. And why do you why, why do you think he? I mean, to to be clear, you know, even those that have made their life in Los Angeles or Vancouver or Toronto for many decades still obviously feel this pining for the Iran that was, or hopefully some Iran of the future, or whatever it is. But but why do you think he? could never quite feel, um, could never make home in a place like Los Angeles. Because his home was Iran. His home was Iran. And, you know, it's just, why can't I be in my own country? Who are these people that are not letting me live and be who I am in my own country? 
um, you know, all, all artists, everyone, artists, non-artists, everyone feels that to different levels. You alluded to this earlier about the the music of that starts emerging out of Los Angeles in the '80s, and I've got to say, I mean, I've said this before on this program. I'm not I'm not a big fan of some of the cheesy L.A. Persian pop of the 80s and 90s, like I just never got it, you know. But while that was dominating the sound of Persian music at the time, uh, like I, like we said earlier, I mean, Habib didn't entirely play the game. He's got those records that come out in the 80s, but it, they still don't quite sound like that L.A. sound. How yeah. does he manage to stay out of that and for that to become the second half of his career until now, you know? by not listening to anyone and doing his own thing. Yeah. And that's what, you know, takes you kind of out of the party. <laughs> so, yeah. I would imagine there would be pressure though, to sort of like, again, to, maybe I'm overusing the term, but to play that game in, you know, in order f for career reasons, right? Yeah. Well, that's why he came out and, you know, he started working. He started working here in L.A. and still supporting himself and making his albums. And that's why I say he was true, true to his word. Um, yeah, for him, making what he wanted was more important than being in the flash of the scene. By the 1990s, he's making music that's um, fair to say widely heard again, this time He's in L.A., but he's, he puts out a popular record called Bezan Baron. Um, tell, tell me about that period. We're going to play that song actually at the end of our chat, but um, tell me about that record from your point of view. Yeah, this is where he went back to his heart and uh, recording with Lou Varujan. He recorded with Lou Varujan until uh, Jabuni. And yeah, Bezan Baron, Kedin Rodom Kardan. That's where he, you know, with full strength, went into the heart of uh, not just the Islamic Republic. These lyrics, you know, are not, yeah, they're meant for the Islamic Republic, obviously, but they're also lyrics that will always stay in time. They will always be, you know, because the Islamic Republic is like a, you know, bad dreams and a come and go. But, you know, Dino Dom Kardan, Bazan Baron, it's something that's always been done and could be done again in the future. And all of his lyrics that are, most of his lyrics that are, you know, social, political, are everlasting. In that period, would you describe him as, was he bitter? Bitter? You know, he was always a little angry. He was always a little angry. And I guess it had to do with not being home. And I guess it also had to do with, you know, doing his own thing and just uh, not, I don't know, when you see like that, what, what you mentioned, like what's happening in LA, the cheesy pop and stuff like that, while 
you know, Iran is the way it is. You know, we mustn't forget. So maybe that upset him a little bit. You you would have been a teenager when that record comes out. Yeah. Um, a, a few, just a few years later, you start singing and playing with your dad. But but before that, in the 90s, what was your relationship with him and his music like? You know, I didn't... I was mostly, at that time, listening to his Maratana and Shab and Modern album. I, I Yod on a Man like, was one of my favorite songs at that time. I was more more in there. And also Hamra's and that kind of stuff. I wasn't at the level to understand Bezambaran and Kabirabal. I'm still, you know, it's still so much to understand about these lyrics. But yeah, I was still, I was too young then to understand what that was. Wow. Uh, to, to what, what does that mean, not at the level to understand? My Farsi wasn't so well, you know, and just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, you know, his monhasir befad. You have to, yeah, just lyrics wise, I guess you could say. Yeah. Was it, was it always kind of a, an expectation or, you know, uh, a calling that you were going to be a musician as well, that you were going to be a singer? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. When he saw me sing here and there just at home, you know, it it, it impressed them. He would say, oh, like this or like that. But, you know, seeing how the party buzzy was, he always warned me that, yeah, this is not what you want to do. And, but, you know, we did it. And it was successful. What did, when, when we say party, no, I saw I saw good sides and bad sides of it. Right when we so. say party bazi, like what uh, if you were trying to <laughs> if you were trying to describe what that means to a non-Iranian, what would you what would you say? There, there there's probably I mean, there's non-Iranians listening. I, I, you know what do no. we what do we mean when we say party bazi? Well, for example. You know, it's just you you have so many friends and, you know, just you, you hang out with the people or or whatever. Uh, you let me just say what happened to me. Then maybe that's better. Sure. Better example. Sure. Um, recently in this uh, Woman Life Freedom uh, last year, um, the first month I gave a song out. And you know, I just immediately recorded it and just put it out. I wasn't thinking about um, you know, do advertisement here, do that there, do that there. No, it was a very raw moment, you know, just give it out and be part of the movement. Um, I gave it to some, I'm not going to name, to some arenas that should have, do have um, aired in the past. But when I gave this, I saw, you know, pause. And someone that I had on the inside told me that so-and-so has sung the same 
a song with the same title, also called Ariokon. And they have paid for, they've done a video, they're paying for advertisement, this and that. That's why they're not giving it out. I'm like, no, it can't be. No, it just can't be. <laughs> Now, in this time, uh, and a few days later, I saw that theirs came out. And I was like, wow. So that kind of stuff, that's kind of extreme, maybe. But that stuff, yeah, had existed for my father as well. You know, if he's going to be in this concert, you know, and his name is going to be there, I don't want to, you know. Right. And my father was never into that stuff, you know. Even when I was singing with him, you know, so-and-so, they would want their name first. Hello, there was like a new Mickey Mouse singer. My father wouldn't say anything about it. He would let the concert guy take care of it. So by that, I mean like stuff like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Tell, tell me about playing, starting to play and, and sing with your, your dad uh, in, in the early 2000s. What was the, what was the eureka moment where you guys look at each other and go, all right, let's, uh, let's try this thing together. Or, or, I mean, did you approach him and say, dad, I want to do this with you? Or did he come to you? How did it work? You know, I was always into, well, first of all, I found his song, Durure. Mm -hmm. You know, I found it in a cassette, very old cassette uh, from Iran that when he had recorded and, you know, before Maritana, I was like, you could tell it's just like a little band. But it was a really nice song. I would always play it for him. I'm like, Dad, this is really nice. Let me sing it. Let me sing it. Eventually he recorded it. But, you know, when I heard it, I, I it wasn't something I could sing. It wasn't something... At that age, I thought was me. You know what I mean. So and I, I just couldn't sing that at that time. Hmm. And so he sang it. Following that album, you know, I started telling him what I like and showing him examples where he um, created Javuni for me. Uh, he wrote the lyrics, uh, he did the melody, and he did the arrangement with Lou Barucha. And that is. Um, yeah, I sang that song and a few other songs, and then we started going around and checking the market out. That I mean, that becomes the first album, and it does very, yeah. very well for you. Did you, I mean, the obvious question is how how do you deal with being in the shadow of somebody who's considered, you know, legendary? I mean, you know, there's. it seems to me that a lot of kids, there's usually when they, when they have a famous parent, they either follow in the footsteps somehow or they go the exact opposite, like they rebel and run as fast as they can away from, you know, uh, things because they don't want to have to compete with the, uh, the live in the shadow of their, of their famous uh, parent. H how did you deal with that? No, we didn't have any, I mean, it wasn't like, there was other, there was some issues that, that weren't, necessarily between me and him but just how things should have been done it should be done like this there, there wasn't just us uh you know for the jabuni album uh eventually we went to amir Rasimi, who also added some songs and some with the lyricist paksima we were that's where we got introduced to paksima and schubert and he has a lot to do with the success of the album too i have to say uh, but yeah not so much conflict between no no regal bat i would say more like hmm. 
you know, you should have handled this situation like this. You should have handled that situation like that. Um, yeah. And you would, and you would, you wouldn't, there wasn't like sort of a, oh my God, dad, leave me alone. You know, like I'm, I'm my own guy. You guys, it was harmonious no. for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a credit yeah. to him and you. And, and how did he feel about your, your, um, shaggy blonde uh boy band uh, locks how did he feel about your hair you know what he would borrow my clothes <laughs> sometimes so <laughs> yeah 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 don't get me wrong is, you are very cute you're very cute i don't i don't want to get i want you to get the wrong impression that you're very cute at that time i'm not taking it away from you i'm just wondering how the, the iconic dad felt about it <laughs> no he didn't have a problem with it but I mean, there were some places where he would say, hit the brake, you know, not, don't go that far. Um, there was a thing about um, use, I mean, when you have an actress, for example, in your music video, how far, how much does this culture accept or not accept? Maybe this is too much. There was stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. Mohammed, I want to play a song that you and your dad did together called AD. What can you tell? Oh, yeah. What do you tell us about that? That one, the lyrics were written by Mina Jalali, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And we sang that together, and that's one of the great songs. That's one of the great songs that we did together. It's it's always every aid. It's there. I see it around. That's all it is. When did we record that? I'm thinking, is it after my heart surgery? We immediately I think it was before. Record. I think it was, it was 2005. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm wrong then. Sorry. Not Sorry. that I know your story, your history better than you, but I think that, I think in this case, I, I might be right. I'm not sure. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Iran Bonu. It's in the Iran Bonu album. Let's play a little bit yeah. of AD. This is Habib Ben Muhammad. of the song A.D. Habib and Muhammad from 2005. You know, it occurs to me, like, I uh, certainly in Persian music, I can't think of a lot of father and son or parent and, and child, um, you know, hugely successful Do I mean, I know Reza Rohani and his dad have done some performances together, but, but nothing quite like this. And even in music in general, I mean, it's pretty hard to... I think McCartney and his son did something at some point or Jay-Z and Blue Ivy. I don't know. There's not a lot out there. Um, what, what what was the audience like for this? Was there like a young contingent who would come for you and an older one for your dad? Yeah. Yeah, I remember scenes like that. I remember scenes like that. But most the young ones, you know, they still, they knew my dad. You know, they knew my dad. Their parents were there. <laughs> yeah. It was it was it was it was kind of like a complete show because it covered everyone. Yeah. 
You you alluded to it a second ago, Muhammad. In in two thousand, I guess it's two thousand six, maybe you're playing in Dubai, and you end up needing surgery for, from what I understand, a childhood congenital, congenital heart issue, and and I guess you need to go to Iran for treatment. Um, that would have been scary for all kinds of reasons in terms of what's happening to your body. But tell me about that whole experience of going to Iran at that point. Maybe it was 2008. Okay. Oh, yeah. Maybe it was 2008. We were in Dubai, and we had been there for a few months. And I was sick. You know, I had other issues going on. There was a colon. Uh, There's infection going on in that area, which wasn't healing. Overall, I was not feeling well. I remember having fevers and just staying home. It was just, what's, what's the word? convulsions convulsions yeah it, it was i was not well and when i would go to the doctor we go to emergency room like twice a week maybe and there was a few times i remember they did my heart and they're like there is you know he, he needs to see a hot heart doctor and it had been it had been a while since i stopped seeing a cardiologist just because like it was an annual since i was a kid i thought it's not a big deal so my heart had gotten enlarged and i guess this was stressing everything else and doing its normal um thing so it was so bad that i couldn't come back to the states so me and my mom we got on a plane and we went to iran and immediately right there i remember they took my passport away i was um first of all i was medicated and i was you know when you're close to death you you know some people or some people at least you everything you just see positive nothing really matters hmm. And you try to see everything positive. And so I remember my mom was like, when we were in the room with the with the guy who took my passport and just asking questions, she looked at me and was like, boy, my job or that, you know, like that. And I asked the guy, I said, I looked at my mom and said, but it was in a way, it was my, the, it was one of the best times in my life, maybe I could say, because I uh, survived. Um, I was with my family. I saw my some of my family there in Tehran and traveled with Tabriz, family that I always heard about. Um, I remember the first time I went out in the streets to drive, you know, the, the bricks with the yellow, yellow small bricks. It's, Iran is famous for it. I saw those and with painting on them and just everyone was Iranian and it, hmm. it, it felt really uh, like a feeling I'd never had before. It was also one of the worst times of my life, of course, um, just because, you know, being having to go to those interrogations was not a big deal. But being in the hospital and when I was recovering, could you imagine like you're in ICU and people are coming in? and talking to you, taking pictures, jumping on your bed. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, to clarify, your dad didn't doesn't go <laughs> with you, right? It's you and your mom who go. No, just me and my mom. And just me and my mom. And were you surprised that um, that you were getting interrogated? I mean, you're you're just this kid who was basically growing up in America. I mean, was it was, was that part shocking for you? Yeah. The first the first interrogation I remember we went, it was this, this street called Afrira, and it was a building that 
has no windows, just, you know, big, what is it? It's like no windows. And we went inside. And at that time, it was like, it happens every once in a while. Lights turn off, you know, in different sections, just to conserve energy. Lights turned off too. So imagine being in a building with no windows and lights are off. So yeah, we were waiting. There was a few other people waiting too. And then finally it was my turn. I went inside. It was two guys. And it was obvious later, you know, one of them was playing good cop, one of them was playing bad cop. And the first thing the guy said, he yelled. He yelled so loud that my mom said she could hear outside. What are you doing here? You know, why did you come here? And I just said, well, I'm sick. You know, I came for see the doctor and stuff like just, you know, it was weird because like they're, they kept repeating questions. The guy that was a good cop, he, he looked like he's doing algebra on a paper. I don't know. Maybe it was like truth tests and stuff. And it, and was, it, was, it, it, was, it was clear they knew, I mean, I'm a stupid question probably, but they knew who you were, right? I mean, they knew. Oh, you were, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I remember the guy said, you know, your father. It was weird, you know, different extremes and maybe it was different interrogation. But he said, when your if your father comes here, you know, we're going to immediately arrest him and take him to jail. I'm like, okay, I'll tell him that. Well, And then same guy, I don't know if it was in the next thing or the, that one, he said, yeah, if your father comes here, you know, or any artist and they're here for two years and, you know, probation, and they go through the process, they can get permission to perform in Iran. So he said that and he said that. I was just like, okay. Well, I, I <laughs> mean, in, in terms of the interrogations and the hardship, um, it's, it's interesting that... It's the it's a year later that uh, Habib, your dad, decides to to choose us to go back to Iran in two thousand and nine, and and that's a decision that will not just define that that will kind of define his final years, um, and it could not have been an easy decision, and it could not have been something that your mom would have taken lightly either. Um, what, what? How can you best describe why he made that decision? You know, it's first of all, his sister was sick. Uh, he's been wanting to go to see his sister for a while. My mom would go and come every once in a while, and you know that kind of made my father like you know left out. Um, and me going and surviving all that BS, I guess you know, kind of made him think, okay, you know, let's, let me go try it out. You know, it's not, he, he risked it. I mean, he was brave. That's all I can say. Did you try and prevent him from going? No, I didn't. My mom did. I remember she said, um, I didn't, I don't remember preventing him. No. Do you regret that? that? Huh? I was do, recovering still, probably. Do, do you regret not trying to stop him somehow? Oh, totally. Totally. You know, totally. Oh, in John, I'm a hoodie. Well, he
کردم شب و روز من یکی بود گریه هم از بی کسی بود دستای تو رو میخواستم اینجا جا خیلی خوابی بود شب و روز من یکی بود What happens when he gets to Iran? So when he gets to Iran, uh, they take his passport like they did to me. You become Amnul Khuruj because you can't leave the country. Uh, they have your passport. And in order to get that passport, you have to go through whatever process they have for you. You don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, they confiscate his computer there. Um, and just bad treatment. Uh, he got his computer back, yeah, a while later, maybe seven, eight months. It was returned back. I messed up computer. Um, and while he was, while that was happening, I guess towards the end, you know, people find out you're there, this, that, this, that. There's always people that come forward and try to help you and this and that. Some of them with good intention and some of them with bad intention. So he ran into a few people that said, you know, you can, you know, this is happening, this is happening, there's progress, and uh, we can get permission for you, Mojavis, for you, you really don't have to do much, just be here and we'll, you know, take care of everything else. And that's where it started, yeah. And within the first year, within the first year, a year and a half, he, he realized that this is bullshit, and he told me not to, I don't need to come back anymore because well, I even when I went back while he was there after that incident of the heart surgery, again, you know, I was made Mamna Khuruj and I had to go through this whole process. They don't even know what they're doing themselves, you know, hmm. when you go to these offices and try to deal with them. And you were going to visit him at this point then, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that was the last time I saw him. Which, and... which is when? 2010 or 2011 yeah 2010 or 11 wow. 10 maybe was the last time i saw him a few years before he he dies would how how do you just i mean how would you describe how would you characterize his final years in iran you know it was very it was difficult for me seeing this because um First of all, after that, within that year and a half, you know, he said some stuff. He did some stuff which jeopardized his situation there. Um, in an interview with Bahman Babazade, uh, he said, "Man which means because of my the beliefs in my heart, I don't need your mojavas." And that came out. And he remained quiet you know he didn't remain quiet meaning he didn't say anything he didn't talk to anyone um all the gossip and stuff that would come out um on the media from all sides from outside iran saying oh look he went there he's gonna do a concert uh from inside iran they just kept using his name for different stuff yeah this is happening that's happening it's going through airshot process uh, there's going to be a concert in May. She's Azadi. Like, he didn't know about any of it. You know, I would call him. There's emails. I would email him. Do you know about this? He's like, 
خودم خبر ندارم سو وین کامز آن استیج ان موزیک ما think that they brought him finally after that time he goes on stage and he says after six years of silence i finally could say something yeah and by the way i don't belong in this front row because they had sat in the front row he says i always like to be in the back and i thought this reward or this award is for myself you know i i've done nothing i've done nothing to to get such a reward but it was obviously for someone else he said i thought it was for me i had done nothing And he said a few other stuff, and he ends it with a with a poem, and anyone who sees that could see what you know he went through, and yeah. Needless to say, he can't, you know, he can't put out albums, he can't tour, he can't. Um, that that what makes this both more tragic and more infuriating somehow is that. It's not like I mean he would I would perhaps describe him. You tell me if this works as um, quietly defiant, or he spoke through his lyrics sometimes. But it's not like Habib yeah. is leading marches or you know out there you know animatedly uh, an activist against the regime. So it, it it's it's all the more damning, isn't it? Well, he has he has. Uh, criticized them in different interviews in the past um and of course yeah his main outlet is his music but uh yeah that's how it was Mohammed I know it's it's probably not a it's not the, the easiest thing to talk about but I, I've obviously got to ask you you're you're in the states when when your dad dies Um, tell tell me about his death. So, yeah, that morning I wake up and, you know, first thing I saw first of all was uh, a photo of him on the ground of the mortuary with with sheets wrapped around him. So um, later to find out that the Ostandar of Mazandaran, either the current Ostandar of that time or the former Ostandar, they're, they're mullahs, they're all mullahs, uh, gave permission or ordered the mortuary to open their doors because his son worked for Isna, one of these, one of their, I, I'm, I can't say the name because I can't remember, one of their um, internet magazines that posted this picture for the first time. So right immediately when he died, they, um, you know, did what they do. And I immediately, you know, had to go there because my mom was there. I, you know, started going after getting my passport done. They ordered my mom to immediately bury him. He was not allowed, not just to Fetehun Armandon Besh Zahra, But he was not allowed to take to be taken to his birthplace. You know that's how it is in, in tradition. You're supposed to, you know, they take you to your birthplace to get buried. He was not allowed that. Um, they came to my mom's house while I wasn't there, and you know, just I guess you could say nice way of threatening. Um, when are you going to bury him? You know, I remember my mom saying, "He's not a cucumber. I can't bury him right now." And um, when I got there, uh, oh, 
Yep. So that morning, I remember I went out. I was just in the streets walking. And sorry, 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 Mohammed, are you you find out by seeing this picture? Or, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I saw a few condolences on my uh, messages, and when I saw that, I immediately went to Facebook and Instagram, and just I saw the pictures. That's the first thing I saw. It was everywhere. Tell me about that moment. You know, when I saw that, I thought they killed him, and. I, I, whoa, I can't even describe. And you would see, I would see um, different links posting this picture. It was everywhere. And, and writing, if you want to see how Habib suffered, click this link. You know, and I would click it and I would find out if someone wanted to advertise their phone this, if someone wanted to advertise that. So, yeah, it was a nightmare. <laughs> So yeah, VOA called me while I was here, and they asked me a question about Ahmadinejad this, that, and I gave an answer which, you know, <laughs> after that phone call, I didn't answer anyone else's phone call because I immediately got a call saying, don't um, speak to any of these, you know, stations because you're going to have a problem when you come back. So when I went, got back, um, you know, and I met my mother. To Iran, you mean? Um, I would get phone calls saying to come to such and such place. Uh -oh. I got many phone calls. By the third or fourth phone call, they started saying, you know, it means we'll retrieve you in some other way if you don't comply. And I didn't go. I didn't go to any of them. I we kind of complained through sources that, you know, we had close, like, what is this, you know? I'm uh, mourning, I don't even know what's going on. And they want, you know, and, and really, it's like you're you're so busy and and all this stuff happening around you and they want me to go sit down somewhere and talk to them about what, you know? Um, so eventually that first time, I got out in peace. But everything we wanted to do was was clamped down you can't do this you can't do that um i had to go to the mortuary where they forced him to be buried and i had to do you know for the graves of the shahids you know so they don't get mad at my father being buried there and it just it's just a whole ridiculous shit show and you know i had a background in growing up here you know going after Islam and stuff, and I was, know how to give the azan and stuff like that. And I remember they knew this, and they said, "Yeah, you should come and give the azan." It was the fortieth, or it was Eid al-Fitr. It's Chelum Eid al-Fitr. If you want the Chelum to happen, um, you should come in this morning and give azan. And uh, you know, I didn't have a problem with doing that, but 
I think they use that in their advantage as well. But yeah, it just it just sounds horrible. I mean, it sounds like I'm so sorry for you know you, it, but... it was just such a it was hell. It was hell. How how it do was... you how do you I mean as a person how do you react in these situations? Do you cry? Or are you someone who gets angry? Do you start yeah. yelling? Do you turtle? Do you just go in the corner of a room and what what? How does Muhammad? Re I mean, tell me about your own reactions to all of this. You know, that first time, no, I surrender to everything because I have to, I have to, you know, be there for my mom. You have to be the strongest you can be. That's the only choice. You have no other choice but to be the strongest you can be and just remain quiet to everything because, you know, I just didn't have time for any bullshit. That was the first time. And um, the what? last time I went was at the beginning of COVID. Again, again, you know, I wanted to, it was kind of a scary situation. Oh my God, what's going on Iran? I wanted to be there for my mom. And that was the last time I went there. Again, when I entered the airport, when I entered, the, they took my passport. And they made me sit. I had to sit for at least an hour, hour and a half, maybe, until these two guys came. And then they sat down and just started asking me all this random question. There, I lost it. You know, I remember losing it there. Uh, oh, yeah, where did I lose it? So, yeah, this is bullshit. I was answering them aggressively because I didn't have time. And the guy kept saying, oh, you know, why are you taking it so why am I taking it so seriously? Why are you wasting my time amongst so much other bullshit you make everyone go through? So then they took me to their, a phone. I, my, my cell phone didn't work because it's the airport. I don't know the number of the person outside. So many things. So they took me to a phone to call the people outside to ask my address because I don't know where I'm staying, you know, etc. So I get their phone. This is in the middle of, you know, the beginning of COVID where Iran is the most dangerous one, if you remember, one of the most yeah. dangerous places. Yeah. And I'm holding this dirty phone, you know, <laughs> and I look at them and I'm like, I don't And one of them said, no, there's no COVID here. I took the phone. I threw it at the wall. I said, eat whatever shit you want to eat. And I went and sat down and put my feet on the table. <laughs> what happened after that? They called. Yeah, they took the number and they called themselves to get the address. That's You're lucky you didn't get to... So I can. Yeah, I was lucky. Yeah. I was lucky. I mean... I was lucky. Uh, uh, they kept calling me after that as well. They kept calling. We want to see you. They kept calling. But it was difficult to want to see them because they kept closing the borders of the... Um, Ostan states to each other because of COVID again, traveling restrictions because of COVID. Wow. There's a, there's a lot of people who pine to go and see Iran, people like me who can't for political reasons, etc. And then, and then there's um, people who go and say, oh my God, it's so great. It's like luxury. And I stayed in five star hotel and all this kind of stuff or, or whatever. Uh, um, or they just describe that it's really beautiful and they love going there. You're, you're, you, you'd be in the category of not a fan, right? You, you don't, no. you're not, you're not enamored of Iran at this point. No, no. I mean, I don't understand what's so, you know, I had a cousin who 
this last time actually who he kept telling me yeah you know when you have money in tehran there's there's you can do this you can do that there's this and i'm just looking at him it's like you know you really don't know what you're talking about um because again it's it's iran you have these zombies on top of you everywhere um even in their good times they're in their good times like you know they're try to put on a good face like during khatami's time um they're still zombies you know in hibernation hmm. and they shouldn't be in that position of owning the country and your life and everything um and again it's 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 surrounded by that lack of culture which is again um because of them because of their presence so yeah it's not i don't it's not uh, even when i used to go and at the beginning and i was having a good time like this place is not that bad you know my relatives would say uh, you haven't lived here hmm. <laughs> you haven't lived here yet your your mom has chosen to stay in iran yeah is that hard for you yes yes of course it is um she's that's just how dedicated she feels to my father um she's kind of been the i don't we'll find a better word protector of his uh mausoleum there which has been vandalized twice so far who would vandalize his his grave well that the hayat omana of that mosque same people who tell me to come and do adai ihtiram for the graves of basijis or whoever it might be um there's cameras there and when we asked them to bring out these cameras so we could see who it is they wouldn't so it's obvious uh that this that last time when they destroyed the lights around it that was about a couple of years ago it was right after um i gave out a video on my instagram account um one of their people said oh you know iranians could come back artists could come back you know you're all welcome and stuff and i couldn't help it you know this was after the last time it came out. so i gave it a video and then uh iran international they reposted this video which got a lot of attention on social media at that time it happened within a week after that i believe interesting with a week or two yeah Muhammad, you're, you, I'm sure you've been asked about this. Your dad's name has been back in the news to a certain extent in Iranian circles because Moin, the famous Iranian uh, musician singer, uh, said that he wanted to go back to Iran. And uh, from what I understand, the regime responded with some, you know, outlandish kind of uh, statement that we're going to put you in jail then for 20 years or something. Have you been asked about that? And, and have you been in touch with Moin, or or do you have any sort of words about that? I, I well, they, I got contacted with from BBC and VOA. I did interviews with them talking about my father's experience and whether, you know, it's it's a it's the right thing to do. 
Um, I don't think Moin, I, I don't know, but I don't think he himself um, inquired this. I mean, everyone wants to go back, obviously. I don't think Moin would want to go back after the incidents of what we all saw. And we, we're still in a revolution. Yeah. Um, it was a, a lady who asked the vizier of Ershad, and his response was, of course, this is, you know, you know, all Iranians could come back and da 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 da. And then she said, What about singing? And then he said, Yeah, you know, if, if they go through the process, the same process of killing you, killing your art. And then someone else said, Yeah, if he comes, he has at least 27 years of prison sentence. Right. So that's what it is. It's just a big, chaotic mess of right. everyone saying what they want to say. And, and it's just this just chaos remember chaos and control as ever as ever it's, everything is chaos it's always chaos uh unfortunately um you, and by the way i mean you you have been warned i mean you said it in one of your interviews uh, in persian that that you were warned to not do interviews in recent years tell 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 me what changed your mind to do something like this today and and knowing that you have family in iran etc well, while my father was in Iran and alive, obviously I couldn't do interviews. I did do one at that time with Ami Wasami, and I I was kind of, you know, you, you kind of can't say everything. So it's like, why have an interview if I can't say anything? And if it was in one of the TVs like VOA or, you know, one of the ones that show news, show what's going on, it probably would have been more of an issue. Um, so that's during that time. And also don't, you know, stop giving out videos too. And then after my father passed away, same thing. You know, I accidentally answered the phone that morning and it was VOA. So yeah, while I was going and coming, there's no way you can have um, interviews with TVs here and go and come in peace. So it was that. So you have you decided you're not going back at all now? Well, yeah. I mean, after I gave out that video where they vandalized my father's tomb after it, that was kind of, that sealed it for me right. Uh, right there. Before that, I had kind of been critical too, but very softly, very softly. But now it's a different stage. It's a different level. Um, we're, in, we're in a revolution. It's just going forward. It's just going forward. Yeah, and I and I should commend you because you've been um, tremendously active and uh, I dare say inspirational. You've you know a couple of songs you've put out that have gone very have been very popular and uh, in in terms of supporting the uprising and being outspoken and being there for women, life, freedom, and all of that. And I say that partly on an episode titled the legacy of Habib because there is an intersection for you and you've said that you feel your father's songs even now a few years after his death and in some cases many decades after they were recorded are more relevant than ever these days totally. in the days of the uprising tell, tell us about that I mean even before the uprising I mean you have I have uh, fans of my father from Iran who make videos and send it to me and after the uprising too, it's just, you know, everyone relates to his songs and they would take Bezan Baron and put it on, you know, um, 
events of right now. Um, everything, yeah, all those songs that he sang, they're about, they're, they're all happening. And they've been happening, but now it's at a time where we all see each other and we're all, we all realize that, you know, we're all fed up and we all see each other. And it's never been like that. And that is because of Massa that happened. And yeah, again, these um, songs are eternal. These lyrics are eternal. Um, the Islamic Republic is just a nightmare that's, that it also describes. But what do you, what do you miss most about your dad? That's difficult to say. Everything, everything. He was very funny. He had not meaning to be. He was just, yeah. Uh, yeah, his his lines. He would say the funniest things sometimes. I just miss him. Yeah. Which part? But a few days ago, I was remembering something about saying funny. Um. I got a haircut. I get it every couple of weeks. And I was remembering once I got a haircut and when I came home, my dad, he looked at me. This is the kind of jokes we would have with each other. Of course, it was always him. He looked at me and he said, Jaya Posh Rushunahate. And I just looked at him. I'll never forget. It was like when I was an early teenager, I looked at him. I was like, maybe 15, 16, 17. And it took me a minute to get it, you know, but I, and I started laughing. He was just like, and he was pretty funny. He was a good father. I really, I really yeah. appreciate this today. I really, I'm really glad to be able to do this in English and to have some document and of, of, of talking about your dad and, and to have you do it. It's, um, uh, it's it's been very special, and I really appreciate you putting the time and going to that place. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, thank you for the questions you ask, and thank you because this is yeah the first time I get to speak about them in English. And I, I want you to come back on and talk about religion one day. We got to talk about we we have to talk about Islam. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. As well. <laughs> there, sure, there sure is. You just <laughs> mentioned Bezan Baran. I want to go out on that. Thank you again, Mohammed. It's been a pleasure, and um, uh, nice. I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully before too long. Thank you. Take care. Merci. Khodafis. Khodafis.
from 1996. Bezan Boron, the great, the late Habib. It's a really powerful song. Mm-hmm. Very. I, I really uh, appreciated Muhammad coming on. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what a what a story! Like I, you know, I honestly thought it was just going to be another son talking about the father, who's a musician, that sort of thing. But there were so many things he said that really just spoke to me, especially the part about him going back to Iran and, um, you know, having to deal with not only the death of his father but also the games that the hurdles he had to jump through that sort of thing um that was one and also him not realizing his father was so famous until so much (laughs) longer yeah well uh, well that part is as i said in the interview i thought as he was saying that i was thinking how you know that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. in the west if you're you know if you're a major rock star you don't i mean that only happens concomitant like uh, simultaneous with a culture that suddenly shifts so dramatically mm-hmm. that you're not allowed to have guitars hanging around, yeah. you know, like it's, uh, and so the kid grows up not having no idea. Exactly. That's so, that's wild. That, that part, I was just like, wow. You know, the, the part he said we would have to hide the guitars. I was like, and, and it's funny because it's not the first time I'm hearing that. Of course not. You know, how many other families do of we course, know yeah. who went through the same thing, but just hearing him talk about it in the context of him not realizing what a big name his father was. And yeah. yeah. And you know, it's, it's like, um, you, you can, I, I don't know how to get in the mindset, but one thing that we can all relate to is COVID. You remember when COVID mm-hmm. happened and for the first month, uh, for, for the, in the beginning, you're you're kind of like this is crazy, but it'll be over in a couple of weeks, yeah. right? And then and and I think early in the revolution, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think I remember. I was a little kid, but I remember, you know, that there was this expectation that this is disastrous, this is horrible, but surely this isn't going to last. Like mm-hmm. if you're someone like Habib, you're probably going these mullahs are going to be gone in a couple of years, surely. Like we got to, you know, we'll regain this country and do, you know. Wishful and thinking. Yeah. And, and so you're kind of like waiting to a yeah. certain extent if you are if you haven't left already uh, for things to change. And, mm-hmm. then, and then the Iran-Iraq war happens. And then, you know, you're in a whole new cycle of tragedy and, and atrocity and, and, um, and support for Khomeini, which he consolidates mm-hmm. with the, with hand in hand with the war, you know. Um, I I also thought it was interesting. I mean, Mohammed's own the tension he feels with Iran, the mm-hmm. the fact that he's not he's not a fan, you yeah. know. Uh, and yet his dad is uh, an icon, mm-hmm. and his mom won't leave because that's where his dad is buried. And you know, there's 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 so much tension in all of that, mm-hmm. and and. and Sadly so. And I was, again, appreciative of how open Muhammad was about talking about all that. Yeah, very much so. But it's so it's so sad and tragic that this is the lives of, this is the same story of so many Iranians, that you have family there and you have this hatred or animosity towards the regime, but you have people who either living or dead who are there and just the same sad story of, of Iranians across the globe. Yeah, it... it we've always known this and we've said it I've said it since the day the beginning of this show four years ago but but we but I feel it more and more all the time that 
no Iranian anywhere, despite what they think in some cases, has been left untouched by this revolution. Oh, yeah. By that revolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by the 1979. 1979 yeah. revolution, yes. Um, all right. So anyway, thank you again to Mohammed Mohibiana. Thank you again to, to Neely Interiors for being one of the uh, sponsors of this episode. Uh, we appreciate that. You can find out more about them in our um, description for this episode if you look down there on your podcast screen. So uh, I thought we, we have a little time. Pega, you're here. We've mm-hmm. talked about doing a bit of a roundup, which we haven't done in a while. And um, there was actually some good news, uh, not to just jump into politics, because, of course, there's lots lots to round up mm-hmm. about uh, about that isn't politics in the Iranian space. But, but there was some good news-ish uh, um, over the last few days saw it a lot in social media uh, with the release of a couple of journalists who had mm-hmm. been famously uh, detained in Iran. Tell us about that. Yeah, so on Sunday, I think the 14th it was, um, Nidu Farhamidi and Elohe Mohammadi, who were the two journalists who broke the news of the killing of Masa Amini, they were released on bail. Um, and so the good news was that they were released. You know, there were photos and videos circulating that went viral of of their release and how happy everyone was that they had finally been released after something like close to 500 days i believe it was that they were imprisoned and unexpectedly right and unexpectedly exactly because um there had been a lot of push for having them released for months on end and there was no word or, or nothing about the fact that they might be or they they might not be and then all of a sudden they were released on bail now this was the good news, but the reason we're saying ish is because shortly after that, um, we heard news of the fact that um, they were actually going to be prosecuted for violating hijab regulations. Yeah. Because if, if you saw the videos and the photos, um, I believe they were wearing hats, both of them, if I'm not mistaken, or one of them was wearing a hat, one of them was wearing a scarf, but it had kind of fallen off her head or something along those lines. And so, of course, now there's new charges being brought up against them. We don't know what's happening with that. They're trying to appeal it, but we have no idea what's what's going to come right. of that, of course. Good news-ish. Good news-ish, yeah. exactly. In a similar vein, well, not necessarily, but, but in terms of the, the names that became familiar to mm-hmm. Iranians around the world as a product of the uprising, there's Shervin, Shervin Hajipur, the, uh, the, the famous Baraye song, mm-hmm. who of course gets the, disappears, gets detained, gets released. Uh, and in the last week, there's he released a song that, uh, it's the most Shervin I've seen since mm-hmm. the Baraye days. Yeah. It, was got, it got shared a lot. Oh, yeah. Shervin got shared. Um, <laughs> And it's an interesting song that kind of walks the skates the line mm-hmm. between being political and just expressive, um, quite quite craftily. So I yeah. thought the lyrics were really interesting to me because, first of all, the name of the song is Ashkal or Trash, um, and so you know when I first saw it I, I didn't know what to think of it the word trash what does he mean what is he going to talk about in light of you know everything that we know about Shervin but it really was a testament to his nickname Pesare Iran or son of Iran because he talks about or rather emphasizes this continuous effort and determination despite facing challenges um, and he relays it back to this idea of patriotism if you will um, there's there's a line in the in the song that he says in ashgal mimune in shahr this trash remains to build rebuild the city 
Um, and so the the lyrics are really interesting because on one hand you feel like he's talking about himself mm. and the struggles and everything, but on the other hand you can also relay it to the struggles of the past year, year right, and a bit. Right. So that was very interesting. There's a um, something going on at the World Economic Forum. I, I oh, yeah. happily <laughs> tuned out of that, or I tried to. What is the story? It's been quite interesting, actually. So the World Economic Forum is taking place January 15th to the 19th in Switzerland. Um, this, of course, is um, you know a yearly event. It brings together um, politicians, um, businesses, business leaders, all sorts of things. And the aim is to improve the state of the world, mm. very generally speaking. Um, <laughs> that being said... <laughs> yeah. Um, a last minute invite was given to our dear friend, um, Amir Abdullah. Yeah. I mean, don't, maybe don't even say that in case. Anybody, <laughs> I say that sarcastically in case anybody for anybody who understand hasn't the sarcasm, heard, yeah. you know. Um, and so he was actually given the opportunity to be on a panel or give a talk, something along those lines. And there's been a lot of They, they can't help themselves. No, these they in, really can't. These international organizations, they're desperate to get Abdullahian involved. Yeah. I, and I just the don't UN, get it. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the irony in all this is that this year's theme for the World Economic Forum is rebuilding trust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's been a lot of controversy about this. Democracy and freedom for women and men. Yes, you know, so, exactly. Something like that, yeah. Um, and, and so there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of talk about, you know, well, is this the best person to be bringing on? Um, and you know, given the fact that we're amongst about who is the controversy? Just Iranians? Well, or not just Iranians. Actually, okay. a lot of people, especially in light of the ongoing um, tensions with Israel and Palestine, you know, the role that Iran plays with that, yeah. um, and and also the last year and a bit, the atrocities that we've seen inside of Iran. Yeah. So all of that put together. Um, Which I'm sorry, feel generally forgotten by the Western world to me. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like anybody's got the atrocities of Iran on the on the top of their brain no, these days. No, and not only do they not. Now, this part is a developing story, so I, I don't have too many facts about this. But um, it seems there was a, a, an interview or like a news, you know how they have like the media and people are walking out, that sort of thing. So an Iranian a scrum? news... Scrum? Sure. Um, when, they, when they all... Like make a circle around a politician and ask them questions? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was intentional. I uh, think he was kind of caught off guard maybe. But um, an Iranian, and I say Iranian, so from inside Iran, um, reporter stuck a microphone in Farid Zakaria's face at some point throughout all of this. And he ended up... The the noble... Farid Zakaria. Yes. Yeah. We all, who doesn't love Farid Zakaria? Well, wait a minute. Right. We yeah. might not after this. <laughs> um, and so he, he was asked a question and, and in reference to Amir Abdullahian, he yeah. calls him an honest man. Right. And so now there's a, there's a lot of... This Farid Zakaria, you know, I think he... I think... <laughs> he's just... I really, I really like trouble. him. I really like him. But yeah, I think, you know, he, when you're one of these guys that has the... I mean, he probably has all these guys on speed dial, right? I of mean, course. he interviews them all. Yeah. So you can't you can't interview Putin and <laughs> walk around calling him a jackass, yeah. right? That's fair. You don't have to say he's an honest man. Well, that's the thing. Do we yeah. need to go that far no. to say honest man? No. Now, again, I, I want to say this is a developing story, so I don't know. Maybe things have changed. Maybe it was out of context, that sort of thing. Well, right. well there's going to be more about this, but that's been the latest. Okay. Oh, I see. 
the whole thing was about Farid Zakaria, your whole yeah, report that, about that was, the that World huge. Economic <laughs> Forum. <laughs> no, Farid Zakaria it said wasn't, that, No, the Farid Zakaria uh, part was the last part. The okay. whole thing is, you know, Amir Abdul Nahyan's presence at the World Economic Forum. I, I mean, it might surprise him that he's that important, though. <laughs> We're talking about a, a, an off-the-cuff comment he made about uh, Honest Man. Uh, well, finally, I, I wanted to, I thought we could mention, uh, like it was just a couple of months ago that we had Golriz Qahraman mm-hmm. on, who has a, an amazing story of being a refugee and then yeah. working her way to become a human rights lawyer and then become uh, the first uh, MP in New Zealand who, a uh, member of parliament who was a refugee. That's right. Uh, and then she's, uh, you know, got herself, there's a little bit of trouble in the, in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So she just most recently resigned um, due to, I think it was, well, I don't know if I can even call it allegations anymore because there there is some evidence of this but um she had it seems that she had shoplifted um at I, I don't think she's been convicted of it no but, she hasn't but been she, convicted she acknowledged it I yes think. She so did i don't think they are it. allegations yeah. so they're yeah. not allegations anymore um so she had shoplifted at at a high-end local boutique on um three occasions it seems and so as a result of this she stepped down and and um, made a statement uh it seems that mental health issues are part of the the reason why this happened she did she did mention that you know mental health issues and work stress had kind of led her to acting in this way which is completely out of character for her um and what i found interesting is that um you know her cabinet members also um went as far as saying that you know she's had a particularly difficult time um over the course of the last few years uh where she's received numerous threats um you know death threats um all sorts of things Mm. All, all in the time of serving, you know, or being being in this role. So, right. who knows if that had something to do with it? But it was definitely sad to see that news. I was yeah, very tough sad. tough days for her. But yeah. you know, she'll she'll probably come through that and yes. be okay. I mean, it's a, a um, it's more kind of I feel bad for her. For I mean, shoplifting is bad, kids. <laughs> you know, I'm not like yes, don't I'm not, do that. I'm not suggesting. Yeah, and 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 if it's. If it's sort of, uh, I mean, there's some news reports that she's done this a few times and mm-hmm. it's kind of her her thing, you know. Yeah. I think we're Winona Ryder was just once. Well, it wasn't, but, you know, the hardest part is like, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of schadenfreude around these type of things, which of mm-hmm. course is the... Uh, the German, you know, the, the, the word, the, the delight people take in the misery of others. Mm-hmm. So I saw some Iranian media reports about it and people kind of making fun of her and, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's, that's the, that's a tough part for her. I'm sure yeah. if she's, she's probably shutting all that out, but she, wisely so, but, but, um, you know, people's, uh, uh, lives go up and down and, and mm-hmm. so this will, this will be a tough patch for her, but, uh, Hopefully, hopefully she'll yeah. This will it'll uh, for sure it'll pass and uh, just stop shoplifting would be the yes. would be the, <laughs> the message. <laughs> PSA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you, Pega. Thank you. That was a really interesting show. The legacy of Habib. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. I learned. What's your so favorite much. Habib song? Madar, for sure. It just can you it name another song? You. Bezan Baron. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I recognize them when I hear them. But uh, really, that is my favorite song because I feel like it just... Mad the Tanhoya Shab? That's my no? dad's favorite. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that song. Mm-hmm. That's a really... Yeah. That's a solid, solid song. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Pega. Uh, thanks, everybody out there. Um, really interesting show we got coming at you next week. 
can tell you more about that through the week if you follow us on Instagram and our different platforms. And uh, our big uh, live show, if you're in the Greater Toronto area, at Theatre Aurora, February 7th. Limited tickets are still available for that. Go to the link in our Instagram page, or actually you can go to our website too, rookmedia.com, and probably find the link. From, not probably. You can find the link from there. <laughs> this is Full Time for Rook for today. Uh, as I was saying, all things related to Rook, go to our website, rookmedia.com. We got the music, Super P. As I say, for all things Rook-related, go to our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together and who create all things Rook-related. Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Savvy Rohan, Bearded Omi, Talented Anahita, Methodical Kaveh, Resonant Raha, Get Better Raha, Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already on any or all of our platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. You can find us on Instagram and Telegram and YouTube at Rook Media. In the meantime, as ever, Mizunbashi. Bashi.